0: The drug was called Erbitux. A young company called Imclone said it had the hot new cancer drug called Erbitux, and its stock skyrocketed. It went right through the ceiling. Investors waiting for the next medical marvel to invest in poured millions into Imclone stock. Then the FDA failed to okay this new anti-cancer drug. Imclone stock tanked. Their CEO was indicted, and investors lost millions of dollars. What happened? Greed. Greed. Greed, it's the good old American capitalism run amok. The desire for money run out of control. We've had our share of securities and stock scandals over, over the years here in America. And in 2007, we saw what had become unprecedented problems with Greed. It began with the housing loan meltdown and spiraled down to affect every part of the economy. I would venture to guess that everyone here was affected in some way in 2007. The problem? Greed. Greed. Greed has moved from the sleazy, dark world of organized crime and Colombian drug lords and Mexican drug smugglers to the highly successful, sophisticated all American boardrooms of America's most prestigious institutions. What happened? Greed. Greed. Greed is a pervasive problem. It shows itself more subtly in our homes and neighborhoods. Maybe it's gambling casinos or lottery tickets or mega millions of jackpots. Why do I want to win the lottery? To help the poor? Eh, Not so much. To help me buy what I want? Probably. That's more accurate. From the boardroom to the living room, greed is a part of human nature. It's met much better to just admit that we all are affected by greed. We hide it in respectable, respectable ways. Yeah, respectable ways. <laughs> Whether we play bingo or the lottery or the stock market, we just want more of something we already have, and it's greed. This is not a 21st century problem alone. Humans have been dealing with greed for a long, long time. And today we're going to look at an event in the Bible, the life of Jesus, continuing our series, Love Story in a World at War. Two conceptions we have, five mistakes we make, and five lessons we can learn. By the way, I have in your notes four lessons and I have five, five actually there. I have this problem with math, so just just kind of put up with that. I was never very good at math, but I actually came up with another one. So um, anyway, it's, it's two, five, and five, just so you know. title of the sermon is First Things first. I'd like us to turn to Luke 12. Luke, the 12th chapter. We're going to start with verse 13. We're going to read sections of this passage as we go through. You can find it on page 845, 845 on the, uh, in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Luke eight thirteen through 15 first. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He starts by saying, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. A guy asked Jesus to settle a family squabble or a dispute. And he wasn't asking Jesus to arbitrate an equitable settlement. He wanted the judge to rule in his favor. See, in this day, the teachers or rabbis sometimes were asked by Jews to rule in points of the law in a dispute. And this guy wanted Jesus to help him for his own selfish ends. He was greedy. He was greedy. Jesus saw this was not just a dispute over a will or inheritance. The, the deeper problem, as he calls it out, was greed. greed. And driving the problem was a couple of misconceptions we have. Number one, two misconceptions we have. Number one, I am what I own. I am what I own. In other words, my identity is tied up in what I own. If it's a car, it's I am what I drive. I'm a BMW or I, I am an SUV or I, I am a 4x4 four four type of person. In other words, my identity is tied to the kind of car that I drive. And advertisers convince us that what we drive is part of our image, it's part of who we are. Now, several years ago, I don't know if you saw this process happen, but I watched Cadillac. Cadillac realized it had a problem. Their cars had a very difficult time appealing to boomers and busters. Cadillac was viewed as a car for older people, for builders. And I watched with interest as they tried, through advertising campaigns, to appeal to a younger generation. Now, I'm not sure they succeeded, but at least they appealed to the older people who thought they were young. That's kind of what happened. Now, I remember when Judy and I bought our first Buick. We never owned a Cali. We bought our first Buick. Now, it was used. It was in great shape. It was affordable for our budget at the time. And I actually went into serious identity crisis when the sales guy told me after we purchased the car that the average age of their clientele and customers was 68 That was the average age. I was 40-something, and I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? Our kids never let us forget it. Buying that car for old people, whatever that was. It's all image. I am what I drive. I am what I own. Or the house. I am where I live. The type of house, the expense of the house, the location, the neighborhood, status and prestige, or I just kind of fit here. Or the clothes I wear. I am what I wear, whether it's clothes like hip-hop clothes, or rappers, or bikers, or skaters, or whether you buy at Nordstrom, or Goodwill, or yuppies, or nerds, and go on and on. You can say, in Seattle, we also have all of those, plus grunge, and we have the east side stuff. We have all of those kinds of things. So clothes, I am what I wear. Or accessories, you can wear a Timex or a Rolex, okay? Or a Bic or a Mont Blanc. I never used to know what a Mont Blanc was. We st- served on the staff of a church that, that had some pretty wealthy clientele, and these the people that were involved in my ministry, they bought me a Christmas gift, and, and it was the first time I ever saw or noticed a Mont Blanc pen, and I thought, a pen, well, th- that's nice. Little did I realize that the pen cost over $300, and the refills were 20 bucks plus. It was like, wow, I had no idea how nice a gift this was, because I hadn't bought that as an accessory. Okay, I am what I own. And if I am what I own, then I'm definitely going to want more. Isn't that true? See, that generates greed. If I am what I own, I'm going to want more. It generates greed. a misconception, too, I'll be satisfied if I just have more. I'll be satisfied if I just have more. Who's more satisfied, the man with $16 million or the man with 16 children? Well, the answer... Obviously, it's the man with 16 children because he doesn't want any more. <laughs> more. The myth of more. And by the way, capitalism, the way it's, it was practiced in, in the biblical times, is actually um, positive. It's biblical. It can be contrasted with, with greed. Capitalism is a fair profit, it's a win win but it all depends on the internal state of affairs and who you are and what's going on. Greed is something that profits at someone else's expense. Actually, that's what socialism does as well. Margaret Thatcher famously said, the trouble with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. Those of you, for Bernie Sanders, be informed. That's where you're at. Okay, we won't get into it. That's as far as I'll go. Greed actually is an inside job. It's the internal motivation. I win and you lose because it's all about me. It's not about you. So what does Jesus say about this universal problem of greed? What does he say? He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Watch out because you'll be taken? No. Watch out because greed can destroy your life. He says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Don't take pride in our possessions. Take pride in our spiritual need for God. So two misconceptions, I am what I own, and two, I'll be satisfied if I just have more. Then Jesus illustrates the point by telling a parable or a story. Verses 16 to 21 is this parable. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but it's not rich toward God. Five mistakes we make. Five mistakes we make. First one is selfishness. Selfishness. This man uses the word "I" six times and the word "my" five times. What shall I do? I have no place. This is what I will do. It's all I. 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 It's my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, myself. It's my. It's, the focus is all on him. It's all on me and my. Self-centered. This man did not think of his possessions as gifts from God, lent to him by God, to be used for God's purposes. When we look at the basic foundation of stewardship is everything we have belongs to God, and they're given to us to steward. We don't own them. They're to be used for God's glory and his purposes. He didn't think about the transitory nature of his possessions. He didn't think of helping anyone else. Maybe God gave his possessions to him so he could use them to help the poor, help the needy, or expand the kingdom of God. There was just self-indulgence. It was just me, I, me. Storing up for himself. How many times do we think of our possessions as mine, mine? What's the first word? Our children learn after Dada. That's always first. Sorry. No, no, it's Dada and it's No. The third word I think they all learn is Mine. Mine. They learn Dada, No, and Mine. Somewhere after that, it's Mama, I think, something like that. But anyway, well, who who taught them the word Mine? Well, Judy did, I think. But anyway, we'll do that. It's. You don't have to teach them the word mind. It's our human nature. It's selfishness, self-centeredness. We don't have to teach our children to be selfish. We have to teach them how to be unselfish and how to share. It's part of the, the human nature. And this attitude of selfishness is not only a mistake, it's also called sin. It's part of our sinful nature, looking at what we have. And this offends God. It goes against the character of a kind, loving God. So the first mistake is selfishness. The second mistake was this man made was forgetting God, forgetting God. Verse 17 says, he thought to himself. Verse 18, he said, this is what I'll do. He talked to himself. He was talking to the wrong person. He forgot God. He didn't bring God into the conversation. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they were just really talking to themselves? They're not talking to me. They just like the sound of their voice and they go on and on and go, wow, they they could carry on this conversation without me being here. What input do you have? None. This, this guy was talking to himself. God was nowhere in his thoughts. God was nowhere in his plans for the future. He just, he just forgot God. Is it first things first or is it first things me? Now, in our endeavors, our ambitions, our goals and drives, and, and all of us have those, do we include God? Do we talk to him and with him about it? Or do we have a one-sided conversation with ourselves and invite God to kind of eavesdrop? Or listen in. Do I talk to God or just me? Is no one else consulted? How can we gain true perspective without consulting God? How can we see truth without consulting God? How do we know what first things first means without God? This man's goal was to achieve ease and prosperity, to eat, drink, and be merry. The third mistake we make is self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction. Verse 19 talks about the fact that his soul feeds on his goods. Whoa, those are interesting words. This man looks at his possessions, and he feels good. This man looks at his accomplishments, and he feels good. Now, is it okay to feel good about what we've accomplished? I, I think so. I wash and wax the car, and I stand back, and I look at it, and I say, wow, that looks great. Okay, I feel good about it. Okay. Or, or we finish landscaping a yard or, or painting the house and we stand back and say, wow, that's awesome. We finish the new website and look at it and say, wow, I'm really good. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to look at you. If you like it, that's all I care. No, that's okay. <laughs> that's right. It's fine to appreciate our success and accomplishment, but move on, get over it. Okay? It's okay to look at it and say, this is great, but don't feast on it and look at it. This guy fed on his accomplishments, his goods, and his possessions. Do we ever do that? Do we ever do that? Look at what we own and feel good. Feed our souls on our goods. I don't know. I don't have barns and grain that won't fit in our yard. But do you ever sit back and look at your possessions and just kind of feed on them? The house that's almost paid for or the new car or the classic rebuilt car. The clothes in our con- uh, in our in our closet, the bank statement, the IRA, our retirement account. When we look at that and we feel pleasure, we can actually feed on that, just like this man did, feeding our souls with our goods. It's a sin because it's self 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 satisfaction. The fourth assumption, fourth mistake, is assumption assumption. Verse nineteen says, "You have plenty of goods laid up for many years." What was he saying? He was assuming he has control over his destiny. He's saying, I control my future. And God says to him, you fool, you fool. I remember back in the late 1990s, we watched our congressional leadership in Washington, D.C. as they turned giddy over the prospect of massive budget surpluses. How many of you remember that? They said, we're going to have budget surpluses. We're going to pay all our debt off. We've got plenty of money, and they said, let's spend it. We control our destiny. We control our future. And God says, you fools. And then he says six words. Stock market crash, housing meltdown, Iraq war. Okay, that's seven words, not six. Seven words. And today, we're almost $20 trillion Debt. An assumption that we control our future and destiny, even as a country. How many of us make the mistake of assumption, assuming I have control over my destiny? No one of us knows, only God knows. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9.11, actually. And it says this: I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth, to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. If you've ever been in the situation where you've experienced an extended time of unemployment, through no fault of your own, you can understand this verse. We never know. We never know. Only God knows. Our accounting is going to come at the end of this life. No one knows when that is, but we make a lot of assumptions. The fifth mistake we make is we miss the purpose of our life. We miss the purpose of our life. This is perhaps the greatest tragedy. God did not put us on earth to accumulate possessions. The American dream really is the American nightmare. God put us on earth to have life, life to the full, but life does not consist of our possessions. So what can we learn from this? Let's look at the next section and see what we can learn. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Wow. Life is more, letter A, life is more than what we own. Our possessions we see, we play with, we taste, we touch, we drink them. There's a physical dimension, there's a relational dimension of friends, family, children. And most important, there's a spiritual dimension. And that spiritual dimension has to do with our relationship with God, a God who wants to, be, to know us and be known by us. And that's why Jesus came to introduce us to his Father, God. And it's through Jesus we can know God and experience this spiritual dimension. People, Most people today are spiritually seeking. People that you work with, maybe you heard this morning, you're just... You're just spiritually seeking. Not sure what all this means. But that's the most important dimension, is the spiritual. This is the part that will last forever. The second lesson, verse 24, says, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barns. God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Letter B, we are highly valued by God. You can add to that, regardless of possessions regardless of you are highly valued to God regardless of possessions God values you God loves you God cares about every single detail of your life Our world demeans the individual cities produce groups of anonymous persons that are just kind of lost in the crowd we establish online friendships through Facebook and exchange pictures with Snapchat We have the illusion of relationships and our value by how many friends we have. And you ask, do we matter to God? I'm just one of millions. Am I just a more highly evolved being from pond scum, or do I have any value? The Bible makes it abundantly clear, and nature confirms the fact that each person is created unique. A unique set of genes made in the image of God himself more valuable than any other part of creation. He uses birds as the illustration. And God notices even what the birds are doing. And I like that. Sometimes when I'm looking at birds flitting here and there, I go, you know, God knows that. I'm, I'm, I'm more valuable than birds. You know, God knows what I'm going through. God knows what I'm feeling. God knows wh- He knows all that. We are more valuable than anything. The third lesson, verse 25 through 26. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, Why do you worry about the rest? Letter C, worry is a non-productive waste of time. Worry is a non-productive waste of time. If we live for ourselves, focus on I, my, me, and assume we're in control of our destiny, then we have to rely on ourselves. And that causes worry. And worry is a non-productive waste of time. Why? The next lesson, verse 27. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will He close you, O oh, you of little faith? And do you not set your heart? Do not set your heart on, on what you will eat or drink or worry about it, for the pagan world runs after that. God will lesson four. God will take care of all our needs. That's the nature of Christian faith. It's a walk of trust. It's a journey of faith that says, God loves me. I trust Him. I will put my trust in Him. And we quit relying on me. Trust in God. In the movie Signs, starring Mel Gibson, Gibson plays a part of a minister who gave up his faith in God after his wife was killed in a tragic accident. And the question he asked people was, do you believe that somebody is looking out for you, or do you believe you're on your own? He said, if somebody's looking out for you, it produces hope. If you think you're on your own, that produces fear. The last lesson, verse 31, says this, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If we seek God, letter E, if we seek God first, all else will follow. Put first things first. This is my life verse. Because I wrestled with that my entire life, especially when I was younger, trying to do things on my own, find a way to make it happen and God said seek me first make me number one and all these others those will all follow but you have to seek me first how do we do that how do we put first things first John 14 6 Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me how do we put things first things first first of all we have to start by admitting that we've been self-centered and selfish forgetting God trying to live life on our own Secondly, confess that we need God. Number three, ask God to forgive us because it's sin. And then seek him by saying, God, you take charge of my life. You be the leader. I want first things first. Now, whether you're here this morning and just needed a reminder to make first things first, or you've never given your life to God through Jesus to make that first step of first things first, I'm calling all of us today to make a decision in our head and a commitment in our heart to seek God first so we can truly make first things first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are aware of our challenges. And I pray, God, that you would help us to understand, to see the truth and that the truth can set us free. That we would see the areas that we hold back, the areas that we count as important. Father, the areas that we are greedy or self-centered. That Jesus, you came to give us life and life abundant and we give it away. We, we are to give things away. Give us that power, that transformation, Lord. That we would be people who are generous. That we would be people who are not caught up in In possessions and not greedy, but that we would give of ourselves. That we would put you first and know that all these other things are given to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Draw me close.
1: Draw me close close to you. never let me go, I lay it all Else to take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace.
0: Help me find the
1: way, bring me back. To hear you say that I'm your friend, you are my desire, no one else will do, there's nothing else to take